We're building this city one day at a time. Welcome to Grow Lincoln, the program with Lincoln's future in mind. Your hosts are former Lincoln City Councilwoman Robin Eshelman and David Albers, two experts in the field of commercial real estate and business development. Now, it's time to Grow Lincoln on The Voice of Lincoln, 1400 KLIN. Welcome to the Grow Lincoln Show from Lincoln, Nebraska, home of both chicken wings and saucy nuggets. <laughs> this segment is possible today because of Charter Title, Remax Concepts, and Sarter Heyman Jewelry. Coming up in the show, UNL President Ted Carter came from U.S. Naval War College, and we are joined by one of his former colleagues at that institution, University Professor Tom Nichols, who wrote an international best-selling book a couple years ago that predicted a major catastrophic event in America. We will discuss the public's distrust of professionals and experts that created our current environment. And we're also going to talk to Leah Barker, who is in for the Home Builders Association and New Traditions Homes, about getting customers to listen to you. And we're going to talk to Roger Frank from Frank Financial Concepts, and he's going to talk about getting customers to listen to you. Is there yeah. a theme today, Dave? You bet there is. Well, we want to introduce Dr. Tom Nichols to you. He is an, also an adjunct of the U.S. Air Force School of Strategic Force Studies and the Harvard Extension School. He is the author of Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Great book. Yes. And, by the way, he's also a five-time undefeated Jeopardy! champion. And a couple of years ago, we interviewed him about his book, and he has a new book coming out soon. Welcome to the show, Professor Nichols. Thanks for having me. Well, give us a quick overview for Death of Expertise. That's such an intriguing title for those who haven't read it yet. Uh, well, the thing that I was concerned about and the reason I wrote the book was not that people weren't listening to experts. I think people always have a suspicion of experts. They're always a, a little nervous, whether it's talking to their doctor or talking to their car mechanic or uh, anybody else, uh, that they want more information or they want a second opinion. What made me write the book was that I noticed a phenomenon, and this is what I called the death of expertise, where people actually started thinking they knew more uh, than uh Experts, And they were lecturing back to experts about their own field of expertise. Um, in my case, my, my background is in Russian studies for many years. And I noticed that people were increasingly comfortable saying things like, well, let me explain Russia to you. Let me tell you about Russia. And when I started to ask around, I found that a lot of people had had this experience, whether it was, you know, pilots or uh, actors. I, I talked with a um, a well-known comedian who said people walk up to him and say, I have some tips for you on timing. Um, you know, and I said, what, what is going on here? And so I decided to write a book about how we became so narcissistic that we actually thought we could lecture each other on the things that we're not even good at. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, the book has been international. How many languages have, has it been published in? What, what, it seems like uh, now, I understand a lot. So, yeah, it's now I and it's um, I'm I'm both happy and sad about that because I really thought when I started writing the book that I was writing primarily about American culture, uh, but it, the book is now in twelve foreign languages around the world. 
Uh, so I think it turned out to be a bigger problem than I thought. What aspects of it did people worldwide agree with? And then were there parts where they pushed back against you and they said, no, 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 we're not like that? I was surprised at how little pushback I actually got outside of the United States. Inside the United States, of course, um, when I would give talks about this or um, interviews, there there were people who would push back and say, well, um, you know, you experts are terrible. Um, but I, I actually found that uh, overseas, um, particularly in places like Canada, Italy, um, Australia, there were there were plenty of places where um, people said, yeah, we've been noticing this problem for quite a while. Um, I think it said something about life in America, that there were, that the people that were pushed back the hardest were Americans who were actually kind of making my case, who were saying, but, you know, doctors don't really know anything, and, you know, engineers make mistakes too, and, you know, those kinds of um, objections. Uh, but there, uh, there was less pushback around the world than I than I thought. Certainly, more less than I expected. Is there a particular solution that you presented in your book, or even a set of solutions that has worked well for readers? That you got feedback that um, you know it was vitally important that experts and professionals needed to know how to defend their occupation and trade, and this worked for them. Well, for. Uh, Experts, my advice was actually to be a little more confrontational uh, and to simply plant the flag in the ground and not run around in circles um, trying to take people through, um, you know, from the first day of their subject to the last day and to simply say, look, you're, you know, you're, there's going to have to be a little more trust. I mean, teachers, for example, um, I, in the book, I talk about a great essay that one of my teachers assigned to me over 30 years ago, called what a student owes a teacher uh, to say, you know, students need to trust that teachers have been through this subject material at least once, and maybe they know what they're doing. Um, I also said, however, that experts need to be more candid about owning their mistakes and to be able to tell the public, look, we are going to make mistakes. We're, we're human beings. We're not, we're not gods. We're not, you know, psychics. Um, we're going to, we're going to screw up just like everybody else in the world. We're just, it's just our responsibility to screw up less in our own field for the public. My advice was to start instead of by lecturing at experts, ask them questions. If you really want to know what an expert knows and want to put them through their paces, don't start by saying, let me tell you, or I once had a cousin who was a pilot. So let me explain airplanes to you. Start by saying, Tell me about what you do and let me ask some questions about that because experts love answering questions and they will, they want to work with you uh, to do this. Um, if you go to your doctor, don't walk in and start by saying, here's what I have and here's what you're going to do. I heard that from doctors. Uh, I, I interviewed many doctors and I heard this over and over again. The patients would walk in and say, here's what I have. Here's what's wrong with me. And the doctors would kind of throw their hands up. Um, walk in and say, what does this mean? What does that test mean? What does this drug do? And, and most doctors, you know, there's bad doctors, there's bad teachers, there's bad lawyers. But most, most experts will take the time. They want, they want to explain these things to you. So that's my advice for sort of both sides of the layperson expert equation. We'd like to have you come back after the commercial break and talk to us a little bit about another book that you're working on. Does that work for you? Can you hang in there? 
My pleasure. Okay, hold on one moment, folks. We'll be right back. It's Crow Lincoln, 1400 KLIN. This segment is possible today because of Realtors Association of Lincoln, Compro, and Transworld Business Advisors. We're welcoming back Tom Nichols. Uh, welcome back to the second part of your interview, uh, Professor Nichols. We appreciate it. He wrote a book in 2017 called The Death of Expertise. And here is a quote from his book. Tragically, I suspect that a possible resolution will lie in a disaster as yet unforeseen. It may be a war or an economic collapse or a real depression. I still have faith in the American system, and I believe the people of the United States are still capable of shrugging off their self-absorption and isolation and taking up their responsibilities as citizens. They did it in 1941, and again after the trials of Vietnam and Watergate, and yet again after the attacks of 9-11. Well, Professor Nichols, you predicted something similar to a pandemic. Do you think we will come out of this as well as you hoped for in the book? Unfortunately, I don't. And when I was on the road talking about the book, I often used the word pandemic. Um, I always said that the three crises that I thought would snap us out of this self-absorbed, narcissistic mindset would be a war, a depression, or a pandemic. Uh, And unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is that we are responding to this pandemic by sinking into our own biases and um, our own uh, our own interest, our own sense of ourselves. That really is, um, I think, one of the reasons that the United States is struggling with this pandemic. We're simply we're not getting along. We're not cooperating. We're not all uh, rowing in the same direction. And. Now, you know, we're facing 200,000 deaths or more. So I, I wish I wish I, I I'd hope that I would that this would as terrible as it is. I'd hope something like this would snap us out of it. But um, I guess it didn't. I'd like to ask you a little bit about that divide between, you know, particularly those of us in flyover country and you who are coastal um, about the covid deaths now. The COVID deaths in our state were earlier this week, 404. Um, so we've had that fair amount of skepticism that you hear about in the news about the masks. Um, many believe that experts have overstated the problem. How is it different where you live or, or is it different where you live? Well, where I, I live in Rhode Island um, and... I live close to the Massachusetts border. In fact, I haven't been able to go to Massachusetts because I work there um, from time to time uh, because we had a slight increase in cases here in Rhode Island and Massachusetts uh, put us on the list and we've observed it Um, here. You know, maybe it's a New England cultural thing, but we um, simply accept these things as part of the things we have to do to get better. Uh, and it's not a partisan thing. I mean, Massachusetts has a Republican governor. Uh, Rhode Island has a Democratic governor. But we've all been trying to pull in the same direction, and the cases here have dropped precipitously. I think part of the problem is that people in the rest of the country uh, don't understand that uh, eventually this rolls through all parts of the country. All the hot spots in America now are in the South and the Mountain West. Um, you know, Florida is struggling to get this under control because they simply have, the governor of Florida has made, I think, a very partisan decision 
to uh, try to emulate the president on this. And, you know, it's just at that at that rate, it will never go away. And eventually uh, it will keep traveling out, traveling back from more populated to less populated back and forth. Um, you know, it shouldn't there. It shouldn't be a thing to say, well, as long as, you know, cases are low in my neighborhood, um, I don't care what happens to Chicago. Um, that's not to me, that's not the American way, but that's how, what we've become now, unfortunately. And so it is different here. I mean, we just don't where I live. I live in a small town. Um, I live probably about two hours from Boston and, you know, we, we all wear masks when we go out and, and actually, you know, we have most of our restaurants are open. Movie theaters are open. Um, schools were going to hybrid schedules. Um, you know, it's not that hard to do what we're being asked. It's not that big a deal. And certainly compared to, you know, 9-11 or World War Two or the Spanish flu, you know, what we're being asked to do is is relatively pretty minor. And yet people bristle at it because they've fused this to their political consciousness uh, as some sort of sign of independence or resistance or partisan signaling and that's a tragedy because this is not a this is not a partisan problem this is a and it's not even american problem it's a global problem by the time this thing is over a lot of people are going to be dead and a lot of them are going to be americans uh professor nichols i'm going to ask you another question and that is i understand that you might be writing a new book is that is that correct uh, I am. I'm working on a book called, uh, appropriately enough, given our conversation, called Our Own Worst Enemy, uh, The Assault <laughs> on Liberal Democracy from Within. Our uh, Own it, Worst Enemy. That is so perfect. <laughs> yep. Uh, that uh, my argument is that uh, our democracy is in danger, um, that democracy in general is in danger. It's not just us. It's in the United Kingdom, uh, Italy, Poland, Hungary, India. Um, because we have basically had 40 years of being an affluent um, society at peace with a very high level of technological development. And we have really indulged, and this continues that theme from um, the death of expertise, we've really indulged our own narcissism and our own uh, sense of isolation and our own detachment from our sense of ourselves as members of a democratic and um, um, open society. And um, we're basically just giving up on democracy because we've decided that we would rather be angry and resentful and um, carry around our own grievances. And eventually, you know, democracy can't function that way. Democracy requires a certain amount of civic spirit, and we, we just don't have that right now. And people blame this on other things. I mean, in the book, I talk about people blame it on the economy, or they blame it on uh, changes in the culture, or you know, they blame it on feeling you know, physically insecure and afraid and crime. And what. The, the truth is, no American has ever, even before, I mean, I, the pandemic obviously is a unique challenge that kind of came on us the way nature pops these surprises on us. But right into, uh, you know, six months ago, there, no American lived in a better time than, than 2018, 2019, 2020. Um, you know, there, there is simply no measure and no quality of life. Uh, if you want to really think about 
um, whether or not you're poorly off. Think about how your parents lived in 1960 or 1970, and think about how much you take for granted around you cars that just work. Um, air conditioning yeah. is everywhere. Right? That seems like a small thing. No, to uh, me, no. air conditioning is big, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah. huge. I, I talk about it all the time. I go, I am so lucky to have air conditioning. That's they, Dave's line in civilization. <laughs> yeah, my people say to me, you grew up in the 60s. That must have been cool, you know, because I was, I was born in 1960. People say, oh, you were a little kid in the 60s. That must have been cool. What was it like? And I say, it was hot and sweaty and <laughs> yeah. uncomfortable. Um, but even things like, you know, over-the-counter drugs that would have been considered miracle drugs 30 years ago that you can just buy without a prescription, um, and yet all, all we do is complain about how hard we have it and how no one respects us and how mad we are and, and why democracy is failing us and, you know, why the government is bad and why our, why our fellow citizens are bad. And, um, you know, we've really become a nation of spoiled children. And no kidding. Don't want to get along with each other. You know, I have been really struck by the difference between the the urban and rural split, the the city mouse and the country mouse, you know, thing that we seem to have going on. Um, sometimes coastal journalists come out to interview us to find out why there's such a cultural gap and so much friction and so much tension and so much arguing. But we don't usually send journalists to the East Coast and ask them, you know, why are you no, the way I, that you are? What, what do you wish that flyover country would understand about you guys? Well, two things. First of all, I, I live in an, you know, in the in between that corridor from Boston to Washington, right? I mean, there's about 60 million people here. So when someone from a a small town says to me, you don't understand real America, um, I I would say, hey, I live in real America too. You know, Boston is real America. Um, Just just like Omaha is real America or is real America. My small town in Rhode Island is as real a place in America as any small town in Nebraska. Um, And I think that this, you know, um, 60 million people is not a bubble. 5,000 people is a bubble. Uh, so that's the first thing I'd say, that if you're talking about where real America is and who the real Americans are, remember that, you know, every other person in America do- is different from you, that half of us live on the coast and half of us don't. Um, the other thing I'd say is uh, to, uh, and I think this is really important because I think the culture of the coast, the cities, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, that's become a kind of national culture. And I think people ought to let go of that. I don't think people in my small town in Rhode Island ought to judge themselves or judge their quality of life by comparing it to people who live in Manhattan or in Beverly Hills. You know, I live in a small town in Rhode Island. It's different. And somehow we've gotten it into our head Um, One of my friends has a great line on this. He says, you know, it used to be that if you went to Ohio, nobody in Ohio said, well, you know, we have good sushi here, too. They said, we don't eat sushi. That's terrible. We eat barbecue. If you're here, (laughs) eat what we eat. And so, you know, stop stop resenting other places for being different than you. Every place has something of value in it. And, you know, I, I guess. I mean, I don't. I don't try never to use the term "flyover country" because I think people, when people like from where I am, use that expression, they get mad. But what I would say to people in the heartland, as opposed to people in the coasts, is, um, you know, stop looking for reasons to to 
um, be angry at people who live thousands of miles away from you. You know, we live our lives. We, we get up, we have to get up and deal with our families and our health problems and uh, all the things that we have to deal with just like you do every day. And the idea that we're somehow not real Americans or that there are, the real Americans are in the cornfields of Kansas or the mountains of Wyoming, but it, it, but the real Americans aren't the hundred million people who live along, you know, the East Coast and part of the West Coast. Is somehow, right. um, it's really unpatriotic. I would even go so far as say it's unpatriotic. We're all real Americans. Everybody who comes to this country and swears an oath to the Constitution is a real American. Amen. That is such good stuff. Well, we really, really appreciate us. Tell us again the name of that book to look for that's coming out. Uh, should, should be out early next year, early 2021, uh, called Our Own Worst Enemy. Our Own Worst Enemy. Look for that. Also look for his previous book, The Death of Expertise. Thank you so much, Dr. Nichols, for sharing your viewpoints with us. Uh, great stuff. He's also a great follower on Twitter. Radio, it's uh, Radio Free Tom. Uh, Radio Free Tom, right? On Twitter. Radio Free Tom. Tom. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and remember, I don't represent the views of the Navy or the Air Force or Harvard or anybody else. Uh, just me. Okay. Well, good stuff. Thanks Thank again. you so much. Coming up next, Roger Frank, trusting your financial advisor's expertise. We'll be right back.